Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie, and I am delighted to have a guest here with me for the next several episodes, actually. Welcome, Chris Kimball. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. I'm good. Thank you. It's so good to have you here, Chris, and I have become acquainted through a, a, a common Facebook group that we're on where we talk about all sorts of fascinating, interesting topics um, around the Latter-day Saint space. And the reason why I have Chris on specifically here, many of you may actually be aware of a book that he has recently written and had published. The book is titled Living on the Inside of the Edge. And so this conversation starting today and going for the next four episodes is going to be a conversation that Chris and I have about a lot of the content that comes from his book. And also we're going to just, I, I actually am selfishly interested in some of Chris's perspectives as a lifelong member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and someone who calls himself a survivor. And as a matter of fact, his book on the front cover calls this a survivor's guide. So why don't we begin today? If we may, Chris, in your, first of all, giving us a little bit of an introduction of who you are as a human, and then move in from there and talk to us a little bit about the origin story of how this book came to be. Oh, great. I'm uh, a 68-year-old grandfather. Start there. Okay. Um, three children, married, 11 grandchildren. And that is actually the way I prefer to identify myself these days. Um, for purposes of this conversation, for the book, I'm lifelong member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, born into the faith, with parents who are multi-generation Mormon themselves. Um, people tend to notice that my grandfather was Spencer W. Kimball and that um, sometimes sells books. <laughs> it's an, I, I, I would choose not to use that as a title, but I'm aware that people say it and refer to the book that way. So uh -huh. I, I, and I, in fact, I do point out that I'm, I'm, in 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 the introduction that I'm about as privileged a upper middle class white male multi-generation Mormon grandson of a president prophet checking all the boxes in Mormon life up till the time I was a bishop in the 1990s and that experience was incredibly powerful and important and 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 positive in many ways but also destroyed my relationship with the church i mean the mid 90s in a number of different ways did that but the experience as a bishop really brought it to a head and uh so from that point on having broken up from a typical or orthodox or traditional relationship with the church. I have now, what is it, from 96 to 2023, 27 years on the on the edge, um, involved with the church in a very fringy sort of edgy sort of way. I think it's relevant for, to me, it's not the most important part of the whole story. But I think it's relevant for this book and for the people I talk with that coming off as after I was released as a bishop, I went to my new bishop 
neighbor and turned in my temple recommend mm. telling him I was not willing to engage in the whole worthiness structure, not willing to sit for a recommend, no matter what, not having to do with the particular questions or where I was, how I was living or how I might answer them. I was just not willing to be part of that system anymore. And as a matter of my own integrity, I would, if I wasn't going to sit for the recommend interview, I was not going to have a temple recommend. And, and that's true now for the 27 years. Uh, the, it's, it's not the most typical way to come to, although, although it's increasingly common as I get comments, to find that the temple recommend, the whole temple process is a problem, yeah. is, a, is a stressor. And the very fact that one could be engaged with the church and with the church community, but without it, with intentionally, consciously deciding not to have a temple recommend is somewhat revelatory to people. I mean, it's mm -hmm. sort of a breakthrough comment when I make it to people that that's, that actually is a life some of us are living. Yeah. Thank you for opening us up with such a that great, succinct summary of not only kind of your life, your heritage, which I, I think is personally very, very interesting. I don't know, you know if, how much you follow the podcast, but we just spent a whole episode talking about the Spencer W. Kimball years in Taylor Petrie's Tabernacles of Clay book. And so sure. it's, it's, a, it's a big piece of our history. And I was personally very struck by uh, my own kind of internal process of like, wow, this is fascinating. Uh, only two generations down you know, the road, we have a gentleman here who is speaking so much candor and truth and authenticity into his own faith journey still connected to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and doing it, um, forging your own path, even in a family with a lot of legacy. And I find that personally to be something that's very compelling about this book, even before I jumped in and like really dug into a lot of the depth and the content of it. And so I think it's kind of a cool connection, Chris, actually, for myself, at least. Um, you use an interesting word, legacy, there. I, mm -hmm. I just, at Father's Day this year, I had occasion to think through this whole legacy business. And, and I have had questions asked about it. I certainly have the legacy of Spencer W. Kimball and Heber C. Kimball before that, and other church leaders and figures. Um, but I think of my legacy, I think of my forebears more in terms of my grandmother, mm -hmm. my father, my uncle, who um, there are stories about each of them and value. But I came to think, and and this will tie back to how I introduced myself from the very beginning. As I thought about on this Father's Day, as I thought about the whole topic of legacy, I thought, you know, what, what is now happening in my head is that I am thinking, I, this is, you know, sort of making me important, but I'm thinking about the legacy I am leaving. Ooh, I'll tear up for my grandchildren. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, you know, they're going to have a grandfather who wrote this book. And I, what's that going to say to them? I, I hope it's something positive, but you know, that's, that is in fact, why I start with, I'm a grandfather. Thank you, Chris.
we're right on brand getting started with a series in tears together. <laughs> yeah. And I am deeply touched by the beauty of your desire to create space for this kind of a legacy, which is someone who says, I take ownership of my faith. And that's what I read in every single page of this book, Living on the Inside of the Edge. You have created a, a map for so many of us who somehow want to be in connection with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'm very careful in my work to make very clear that it's not about being in the church or out of the church. And we're actually going to go into that deeply, right? That's part of our first topic, which is it's not about titles or labels and um, these you know, very, very strict. It's not about dialectics. It's more about complexity and growth. And you are giving not only your grandchildren and your children that, but I am hopeful that we can get this book into the hands of as many people that are navigating at the peripheries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, inside of the edge, outside of the edge. I don't care where they are. <laughs> I just think it's a great book to introduce a new way of being in relationship with the church with uh, a, a massive amount of differentiation. And so we're going to talk about several of these topics that Chris brings up and what you're probably going to notice as Chris and I have this conversation for the next four episodes is we're going to be dipping into the book and some of the things he talks about. I actually want to pull a few really beautiful parts of the book out and maybe just read them. And then we're going to be getting um, biographical or autobiographical and talking mm -hmm. about our own experiences as well. So today, for today's conversation, Chris, I want to focus on one of the big picture topics from your book. One of the things that you were really um, did a great job in in talking about throughout the book is this idea of breaking the idea of, of thinking in binaries. If I may, I want to have you just talk to us about that big concept, and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit about how you play, how it plays out in the book. Yeah, the, the big concept is, I come at it a couple of different ways, but usually the way people introduce the topic, and it, it I'm going to wrap a couple things here, is, is in in or out. And the church, the church community, apologists often communicate to us that you're either in or you're out. And if you're not happy, you're out. Um, and I'm and and I want to break that. There's an interesting play here off the title, um, Living on the Inside of the Edge. I I felt like I had to use that inside of the edge for just to communicate what we're talking about and to be clear. But um, as people read, as they come back, as we have conversations about this, the whole, the, that inside part of that title gets to be um, almost meaningless. Because what I get back from people is uh, the edge that I'm talking about is not like a knife edge that you are just barely inside or barely outside, or you're going to fall off, but it feels like a big, wide, not very, very loosely defined place. And it's just edge, not inside or outside. And that's, that's actually the conclusion I'd love people to get to, um, notwithstanding the title, um, notwithstanding the inside in the title that, um, 
but I actually believe that the inside or the not the inside or outside is a is a is almost misleading because it communicates that that's the topic that that's the only kind of binary that we deal with mm. the inside or outside where in reality I find binaries just suffusing just endemic through the whole culture through the whole conversation and I I think it's I think it's related to the fact that our the way we talk about things, the way our educational system is set up, the way the curriculum is set up, it basically pitches at a, at a middle school level. Mm -hmm. And at a middle school level, you really do talk about um, black and white and being in or being out, about making choices, about um, this is a true statement, about a testimony that says, I know I think there are five points. I know A, B, C, D, E. I didn't grow up in that, um, uh, what is it called? The testimony glove era. <laughs> era, yeah. Era. I, know what you're, I know what you're talking about though. I think I did. <laughs> but, it, but it, I mean, the way we communicate leaves people with the thought that I, I believe or I don't believe. I know or I don't know. I mean, this commandment, you, you accept or you don't the church's portrayal of itself, what the church says about itself is the only way to think about the church, that it is, it is, you take it the church's way or no way. And, and I want to keep saying, and I try to say it over and over again, this is not just one topic. This is not just in or out. This is everywhere you turn around, you're going to find that you have been taught binaries. And, and so I keep fighting that. I keep saying, no, every time there's a possible binary, I, I, I actually set a goal for myself in writing. So every time I see a binary happening, I want to come up with at least five alternatives. And so that even if you, so that there's more than two, and even if you don't accept one or two of those, you still have more than two. I couldn't agree more. And I think the topic of today and the topic of our next podcast really are uh, very, very tightly connected, which is we think in binaries when we're psychologically young, because early development human beings, they, by default, we're black and white thinkers. And it's as we become more evolved, more developed, more mature, that we are able to think in you know many shades of gray, or you might say in the rainbow colors, right? And yet I think what you have come to and what I have come to from our various experiences in life is that uh, th we are oftentimes conditioned in the faith that it is you're in or you're out. And therefore, I think because we don't have these complex thinking skills, sometimes people feel like, well, if I'm in, I'm all in. And I am a part of someone just recently called it almost like the Disneyland version of the gospel. Uh, I think you mentioned the kingdom version. And then I think oftentimes when someone becomes uh, disenchanted to stay with the, you know, the Disney metaphor, all of a sudden this place becomes, you refer to the concept of the evil empire version, which is a very beautiful way to describe uh, being a binary thinker, being a black and white thinker 
where one is not able to actually experience or even live in anything that is even close to the nuances. And so I feel like what your book is trying to do in many ways is to help people become more complex thinkers. And if I may, there's a couple of little sections here in the book where you talk about, you're actually trying to like help us as your readers get a better sense of like, this is this is a complex topic. Like what even is the church? Is it a group of people? Is it a group of ideas? Uh, is it a sort of, can you see the church in sort of a historical context? Can you see the church from the perspective of its origins? Is it a package of truth statements? Is it is it leaders? Is it followers? And so it's like you're thinking a church is all sorts of different things. Then you go on to talk about something else, which again is like my, as a reader, I'm going, oh, I get what he's doing. He's trying to help me take a concept and expand it into something that has multiple colors or multiple shades. You also talk to us about what can I expect from the church? And I really like this section because you just gave, a, again, I love your five, you know, your goal to give us five options. I mean, you were talking about some people come to church um, to experience different opportunities. Some come because they believe it's a place where salvation happens. Some come because they find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in the church. Others come because they believe that the church is a place to build heaven on earth. And others come because they want friends. I mean, that little section right there, I'm just, I just literally kind of just breezed through a half page of Chris's book. Uh, it, it opened my eyes to the reality that church, any church, is a multitude of different things. And therefore, for some people in certain stages of faith early on, it may satisfy exactly what they came there for. And then for other people, as they grow and develop, uh, certain things fall off and other things um, become more important. And then they have to start reevaluating once again um, and looking for what is it that they think this thing is for them. And they have to once again start thinking about, am I thinking in binaries or am I thinking in complexities? So is there anything you want to say about that particular section of your book, Chris? It's, it's at the beginning of the book, which I dare say you put there because you wanted to sort of set a stage for us as your readers that like, oh, by the way, what we're going to get into is a lot of fuzzy gray areas throughout almost every top. Well, I guess I, maybe every topic you you tackle is about teaching people to live in the uncomfortable anxiety inducing gray areas, especially those of us who have been uh, most of our lives in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where we are not comfortable hovering in gray areas. You're like, no, we're doing this. Anything you want to say about that, Chris? Yeah, it wraps in a several different ways. The, one is that the very opening of the book says, grow up. I mean, do take, <laughs> and, and I, and I love Patrick Mason's over, you know, his squib about the whole book was Chris wants you to grow up, be an adult, not, not to agree or disagree, but to grow up and have these conversations. And this was actually a comment by one of my editors who said, you need to, you need to talk about what the church is that we're, dealing with here. I mean, the whole book is about living in connection with, in relationship with the church. But that very phrasing, in relationship with the church, is already different than in or out. The, I mean, I got, I got a, a, some push from an editor saying, you need to talk about the church. But I also got response from, from readers after the fact saying, I expected you to define the church and then talk about what's right or what's wrong about it. And, and you didn't do that, which 
it, it defied my expectations, but it turned out to actually work that um, you, by doing, by not doing a whole checklist of what's right and what's wrong, in my opinion, I guess, what it does is invite everybody, I think, to engage in this conversation. I mean, that's what I really want. Mm. I, it, is, it is clear that there's a core group of people who will hear about this book, learn about it, and think, yeah, that's for me. I, I know I'm, I'm in that audience. But what I want to happen, I, this is a, an unclear to me agenda when I was writing. But now after the fact, talking with people, it's very clear that this was one of my agendas, was to get this conversation happening with every adult in the church. It's, I mean, I do think that at a high school age and older, everybody should go through Every, every church member should go through, what is it that I want out of the church? What is it that I'm getting? What do I expect? What do I expect now while I have children? What do I expect now when I'm an empty nester? What do I want? And that doesn't mean go through that process and decide, hey, I'm leaving. Or go through that process and, and say, that's, I'm, I'm staying. I love it. I, I don't mean either of those conclusions. I mean that as a conscious thinking adult, you need to do that kind of thinking for yourself in order to live your life. I mean, that, that in a way, I'm promoting that as a way to live. I, I love that. And I think what you're describing is inviting people to take active participate. They're trying to, we want, you are wanting to encourage people to become active, proactive participants in their own spiritual journey. And I'm right there with you. I don't, I don't think it's, that's just a, it's, it's less about kind of a good idea and more about like, that is such an important and mandatory part of our, like having a really vital relationship with our higher powers with ourself, with the people around us to not be on the receiving side where we're being sort of spoon fed. This is what you believe. This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is how often you do it. Uh, we, we ought to be growing out of that kind of a relationship. And I think your book is inviting for some people, uh, just a welcome, like, thank you. This is already how I'm trying to like muddle my way through. And I think for other people reading it, it's a it's an invitation to a radically different way of being in connection with the church, and yet at the same time, for some people that are evolving and and changing in their spiritual relationships with the church, unless they are able to and can really embrace this philosophy that you're introducing and that I talk about all of the time on my podcast, they, they aren't going to be able to have a relationship with this church or any church because psychologically and spiritually evolving human beings must be given that kind of radical agency to be the participants and the actual creators of their own lives. And you kind of just systematize it. You talk about how does that kind of growth, uh, not in the binaries, how does it actually look in a bishop's interview, in the receiving of a calling, in the relationship with the temple or the temple recommend? Like how will that look in our culture, in our home institution being uh, someone who is truly taking on the, you know, the position of like an agent in our own lives. And 
incredibly ex- exciting for some and terrifying <laughs> for others, because I think a lot of people are like, I, I can't tell you how many times in my groups, Chris, people say to me, I, I, I feel like I all of a sudden have the permission to fill in the blank. And mind you, I'm not giving anybody, I don't have the permission. I don't have the power to give someone permission, but it's almost like concepts, like what you're talking about in your book, it evokes in people ideas that are more empowering than they even thought were possible. And I think that's what your work is. And that's what my work is. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Here is a quick update. Due to the growth of this platform, I am now focusing the vast majority of my professional time serving you, my people here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as you progress on your faith expansion journeys. Therefore, beginning August 14th, 2023, all of my Friday Latter-day Struggles podcast episodes are available by subscription for the price of $9.99 a month. You're paying a couple of dollars a week will significantly support my work. All Monday episodes are still free as I want each of you to be aware of the great topics we are covering from week to week here on the Latter-day Struggles podcast. In my show notes at the bottom of each episode, you will find all of the information that you need to subscribe to the Friday episodes and also a Patreon link to become a one-time or a monthly patron for all of you out there who value my work enough to go above and beyond subscribing for this podcast. Your small cumulative contributions are a very significant way that you can support me in our faith journey together. So thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the show. Another step, and I don't know, you may want to go here at a different time, but um, the next chapter, if you will, mm-hmm. talks about re- reasons people stay. And the the key, and I tried to be very thoughtful about how I introduced that because I didn't, I don't want to say I'm I'm pitching the church and you need to, pick one of these and, and therefore stay. The, the point of that chapter is really that in my experience, at least in my peer group, which is 60 something peers, none of the reasons to be engaged with the church last a lifetime. And we often hear talks, whether it's from a, you know, a bishop or in a, in a private counseling or from a general authority at general conference, a talk that says, you know, you're going to gather, you need to stay and it's for this reason. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, I find that that I'm going to tell you why almost never works, at least in people I talk with. Um, But people do have their reasons, but they don't last. I think it's a radical thought, at least from people's responses. The idea that in a lifetime of church involvement, whether just inside or just outside or all in or all out, things change. I mean, the church looks different when you're 19 years old. It looks different when you're 27 and newly married and have a couple of children. It looks different when you're an empty nester. It looks different when someone has just died it looks different when your best friend gets excommunicated. I mean, although that's life. And I want people to think about 
the long term. I want people to to think about religion and church and institutional religion as a part of our life that we are going to have a multitude of relationships and experiences with. Because frankly, I do have a hidden agenda that I think I think religion done well is a is a good thing for people. I think it is a good thing for the community. I think it is. I think there's lots of things that go wrong. I think there's lots of things that are damaging. But I don't pitch that in this book. But I but I actually do have that underlying belief that it's that there is a positive there. There is a value there, and I want people to be able to capture that over the course of a lifetime. Well, I think what you're describing that I really, really love is that we all pass through developmental stages throughout our entire lives. And so why would our relationship with formal religion or our spirituality be any different? Of course, it's going to evolve and change as we do. And again, your audience and those in my audience who are wrestling with their relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I often joke around with the folks that I spend time with, which is, you know, if you we're truly on the the binary side of all out. You wouldn't be hanging out with me. Like people that work with me, some of them have not attended church for 10, 15 years. Some of them are bishops and high council people, right? But all of them have a complex relationship with the church and they're trying to find something that is peaceful. They're trying to find some degree of autonomy and healing because this faith tradition is not one you can necessarily very easily psychologically run away from. You know, you can move across the country, you can try to get away from, you know, grandma or whatever, but, you know, we are an ethnicity as much as we are religion, I oftentimes say, and we want to be in connection somehow with this thing that is in our DNA in a healthy way. And so what you're describing in this, um, in this particular section of your book, I really, really liked because it's basically saying that, when you when one moves along the the trajectory of faith development being a part of this church because it's the one true church generally speaking falls off the table <laughs> and and we have to come up with uh something deeper or some other system that brings us purpose and meaning okay so as we close this episode chris i have an idea i'm going to we're going to call this a lightning round not to put you on the spot but you have I think you have 10 or 11 reasons that you just, um, that, and there probably are more, right? But these are some, some big ones that you came up with in the book. If I'm going to call out each one of these uh, particular or possible reasons to stay, would you just give like a one or two sentence overview of what that means to you? you are you open to that? Sure. Okay. Let's go ahead and start. Okay. Reason number one is you called it called by God. What do you mean by that? I find that people, there are people in my circle who, who have the experience that God said by revelation, by answer to prayer, by some kind of um, inspiring event, I want you to be in this church. And I find that for people for whom that is a real experience, um, it's powerful, it's motivating. But it doesn't always come with explanation. It doesn't come with, and you'll like it, or, and it will be good for you. It's just, this is where you should be now. It's like, this is your task. This is your job. And that that's a powerful, but also complicated experience. Sure. And what you're, what we're, when we're talking about each of these sections or these su suggestions is the wrong word, uh, some of these reasons why people stay, 
what Chris prefaced this entire conversation with is that these reasons come and go. There are there are shelf lives to each of these, and each of these things and each of our reasons for doing whatever we do in life, um, by default, are provisional. This is what we're doing today, and it may be different. Okay, so that was number one. Number two, Chris, is unique and necessary. Who are the folks that that, that choose to stay for a period of time because the church for them is unique and necessary? What say you about that? I think these are the people who get the fun, the basic church correlated message that this is the restored church of Jesus Christ. This is where the authentic priesthood exists. These are the ordinances that will save you. To me, that's the basic correlated message. And, and people believe that, but not forever. I think it's, it's a really powerful way to believe but it, I find that it's kind of fragile. I mean, a, a fair number of people who enter into these kind of conversations, the kind of conversations you have and I have, have broken with that. That's one of the common characteristics of people who are in what they might call a faith crisis is something fell apart in, you know, I bought that story early, but it's come apart. Yeah. And, and now what do I do? It's actually for that one, I thought what was most important was to to identify to people that for very many people, it doesn't last forever. Right. Nor should it. Isn't that the beautiful <laughs> thing? Is that's, a, that's the good news. We don't always feel like it's the good news from the gate, but those who move beyond unique and necessary oftentimes find um, an incredibly bright and beautiful world. Um, of far more complex relationships and that God is far bigger outside of unique and necessary than, than they were inside of that paradigm. So let's move on to number three. Okay. Talk to us about meaningful doctrine. Who is the crowd that's, that chooses to stay for meaningful doctrine? These are the, the apologists and the, uh, the intellectuals, um, the intellectuals who stay, I mean, who have, or and also and also the parents who this is this is the people who are for whom family together forever in the celestial kingdom is is the critical doctrine. I want that. Mm. And I'm not hearing that anywhere else, which may or may not be true, by the way, but I I don't hear that anywhere else. I and and that's the piece I'm hanging on to. Gotcha. Okay, number four reason to stay that some choose to stay for some period of time, making a difference for individuals. Yeah. I find that people that there are people and they're very passionate about it while it's happening, who have concerns about their friends who this is happening, especially in the LGBTQ ally community. Yeah. I mean, there are, this, this is the, I'm, 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 I'm characterizing here, but these, largest numbers by far are people who have friends, family members who are in some, who are some part of the LGBTQ community and they engage with the church. These are the parents and the friends who engage with the church as a way to say, I'm an ally. You can sit next to me. It's okay for you to be here. I will speak up when there's a need to make space and that's powerful and laudatory. I do find that it doesn't last forever. 
Yeah. It's transitory for, for some people. And yeah, again, everyone is very, very different, but I love how you're sort of mapping out a lot of reasons why various people stay and there's nothing right or wrong about any one of these things. And, uh, and so I think it's great. Okay. The next one is, uh, oh, that's, by the, by the way, that's one point that I'm glad you mentioned nothing right or wrong. One purpose of listing a, a lot of them is to say they don't all last forever, but it's also to say, these are good reasons. These are valid. These are valuable reasons. Yes. They may not be what you hear from the pulpit, but in my opinion, and I try to pitch that, I try to sell that, that these are these are really good reasons. You should feel happy about yourself. You should feel good about yourself. While people come and stay in any relationship, whether it be a human relationship or an institutional relationship, if, it, if it's valuable and meaningful for them, that is all of the validation that they ought to need. And we're going to be talking so much more about that in our next series or in our next episode, right? I'm sure we are, yes. <laughs> okay, so the, ne the next one is uh, another reason that some people stay is making a difference in the institution. Say a couple of things about that, if you will. Um, that's really the point that people, um, it's, I think it's a valid point that, that a number of people who want to see the church be better are convinced I think it's a perfectly legitimate belief that you can do more power. You have more power from inside that when you're saying, I want, you know, I want the Bishop to run his interviews this way, that if you are an insider carrying a temple recommend and you are the kind of person who gets callings, you get a, you get a voice, you get to speak. Now, I, I don't mean that the church ought to be that way, I think, but that I, that is, I believe it's the reality, and I. But I know that there are people who really believe that. That, as an insider, as a card-carrying member, you get a better voice. You get a yeah. bigger voice. Yes. Next is some people stay for their families. I love that one. I mean, of course, I love all of them. I put them all in. But <laughs> um, but I I intend. I really wanted to put that in because when people when people confess that that's why they're staying, it comes across as I feel a little bit guilty. I feel a little bit sheepish. I feel like that's not a very good reason. And I think it, you know, my spouse goes to church. I want my children to be in the primary program. I, I, those, I want to honor my parents for whom this is important. I think all of those are really, they're really strong. I know they're very, strong influence on people, but I also think they're good reasons. I think this is, I think that's valuable. I mean, those relationships, those interrelationships with a family are important. And if church and if church participation is one of the ways that you can reinforce and solidify those relationships, go for it. But then the kids grow up and leave the church and, or then, uh, you know, then your grandfather dies. And, and I mean, then those reasons um, don't feel the same anymore. Yeah. I love that. You're describing not as it should be, but as is reality for some people. And that as they assess for themselves, what brings meaning to them, that some of these reasons are theirs and that that's okay. And I really loved how you really heightened the fact that I think some people sometimes feel some shame around some of these reasons. And you're actually, I hear you saying, no, we don't need to feel ashamed if we feel deep meaning and purpose in attending because it is meaningful to a loved one. 
and that feels congruent with where we are in our own faith development, then go for it. We don't need to feel ashamed or feel like we're hiding something because there's a, a supposedly higher or nobler cause um, in, in staying in the church. Okay, the next one that you uh, reckon, or that you mentioned is some people stay in the church, and you called this topic coming home. One or two thoughts on that, Chris? Um, yeah, let me make it personal. I grew up in a church where my grandfather was the an apostle, and my father was in the bishopric. And when I was baptized, my we went down to Lake Wingra in Madison, Wisconsin, and my father baptized me and my mother was the witness, if there ever was a call for a witness, and it was family. I mean, I grew up in a church that was family, and that's really how it felt. And so I would walk into a building, this is when I was 20 or 27 or 30, I would walk into a building and it would feel like I'm home. I mean, I'm, I know the people, I know the routine, I know how the sacrament meeting works. I know how to talk with a bishop because I've dealt, dealt with bishops my whole life, including over the dinner table. Um, and that's and that did feel like home. Now, for me, that came to an end in the in the 90s, as I think I've noted. I don't know if I noted it in this book, but the um, the September 6 excommunications or discipline really ended that for me. I mean, it made it made the church feel like um, opposition or a little bit dangerous or something outside that I had to deal with. But but frankly, I was I was in my mid 30s by then. And so I have you know, 35 years of feeling like the church's home and family. And I I walk into a sacrament meeting anywhere in the United States anyway. Things are not the same everywhere, but I can pretty much walk into a meeting anywhere in the United States and feel like I'm home. And that's that's a good feeling. That's that's a happy feeling as long as it lasts. Yeah. The familiarity, the uh the ethnicity piece that I mentioned before is some of us, you know, do have for all of the complexities uh, and trauma that some of us even have to think about in our later years, uh, there is, for some of us, not everybody, there is a bit of a soft spot in our hearts for those early, you know, <laughs> Camelot years when everything, we, we, you know, before before I think we, you know, had had some of our awakenings around the realities of, you know, just a human institution run by human beings. So. Your next one here for reasons why people stay is just say a little bit, if you would, about community. I did a talk. I've, I've done a bunch of book talks. I did one in Seattle, and I won't use names here, but I've already, I almost identified people. At the end of that talk, a couple of hours of conversation, there was a woman in the back, raised her hand and said, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, she said, I'm gay. I have not been to a church meeting since 2015 um, when the exclusion policy came out and that was a trigger and I miss it I miss the community I miss feeling like I'm together with other people of a similar faith even if we're not believing exactly the same way but I miss that and and I have felt that tonight for the first time in eight years um, that whole story. I mean, first of all, it touches my heart. I mean, I love doing those talks because that kind of experience happens. But the um, 
there is I call it an ethnicity, um, but it's but there is a feeling of community, which is, you know, if I were going to be prescriptive, I would say that the church would do us all a service if it would push community over true statements. Um, and but you know, many of us are finding it anyway. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I think you couldn't, I couldn't agree more that uh, if we just were to focus on being in community and caring for one another, independent of dogma, truth claims, I think we would find our church thriving in ways that it hasn't thrived maybe ever because, um, because, you know, lower stage faith is more about coming together and agreeing with one another. And I think as we become more evolved and mature and live more of life, we come to recognize that all of us um, have more, far more in common than we do different because we are all part of what it means to be human, which is we suffer and we struggle and we have triumphs and victories and defeats and just being together and connecting is part of what it means to be a family, you know, the part of the family of God. Okay, let's move on to the last couple before we close this episode up today. One of the uh, one of your last reasons to stay that you proposed was because I promised. Say a little bit about that. It comes up more often. This idea of promise it comes more up more often in people feeling trapped. But it's a very powerful experience that I told my grandmother I would stay. I would continue going into church, or I when we. When I got married, I feel like I committed to my spouse that this is the life we would have. It's very much part of the covenant-keeping rhetoric uh, that we hear from the pulpit. You, you went to the temple, you said yes at the appropriate points, and you're now in. You're now a lock. I mean, you've made a commitment. And, and that's powerful. I hear, I tend to hear it more often as people feeling trapped by that. And I think it's the more radical thing is to say, looking around at hundreds of people I have talked with, it, it actually doesn't last. It is actually not a thing that keeps people in the church forever, but it is very powerful for as long as it lasts. You know, uh, that's a great ending spot because what you're describing, especially in this particular one, which, well, actually there's one more. So we'll, we'll get to that last one first, but I just want to say this is that this idea that like I promised assumes, I think there's a, almost like a built-in assumption that if one promises, one cannot break one's promise. And therefore this is something that lasts forever. And I think that's why people feel trapped because in earlier stage development, there is this idea that it's black and white, it's all good or it's all bad. And if you're in and if you made covenants, you have to keep covenants. And the um, the opposite of that, of course, is hell. <laughs> and so and so people may be evolving and growing, um, but haven't quite yet experienced that revolutionary idea of personal autonomy, which means maybe I don't have to believe that I'm going to hell and I can proceed on my journey of spiritual enlightenment in a different way. And so I think the promise piece, like you said, it's fragile because it's sort of based on a very sort of a, a strict a set of ideas. Over and over again, the conversations are, 
that was 20 years ago. Mm. I am not that person anymore. I mean, that's the psychological reality that I that people reflect back to me is yeah. I'm not the person. I am I am more than I am that person, but I am 20 years of growth beyond that person. And so I am not that person who made that promise. And that is the psychological opening to say, I I can reassess. And I might remake that promise, but I can, I am, I am as a, and it, it, it turns out to be, in my experience, a matter of time. You can't have that conversation next week or next year, but 10 years later, and, and since I'm talking about a whole life cycle, a lifetime of experience, um, that passage of time that makes people feel like I'm not really that person anymore, or I am added upon, I am more than that person, I am that person plus, that's, that's the place these conversations happen. That's beautiful. Thank you, Chris. Okay, the last one is this people sometimes choose to stay for a period of time. Uh, the topic you have here is for the future. What would you say about that as we close up today? That was actually a learning to me. I, that was not in the list in the first place, but a number of early readers came back to me and saying, the reason I'm staying is that I have a re- I have a vision of where we're going, of how the church is developing. And I think good things are happening and I want to be part of that good things happening. I know that other people say are just frustrated and nothing good is happening and I'm fed up and I'm gone. But there's a there that is in fact I but that's a discovery to me. There uh, there's a whole contingent of people who feel I I'm not all happy, but but the things are happening. People are listening. The you know, for the strength of youth got revised, and that's a good thing. And we're that's a trajectory that I like, and I want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of the future. I love that. What you what you're describing that you've done here in this particular section of your book is it's almost like there's some qualitative research going on, some like talking and interviewing and interacting with people on the ground with their lived experiences and kind of coming together uh, with with what you're hearing over and over and over again. And then bringing to us some some wisdom that kind of helps in some ways, helps us as individuals have a sense of like, yeah, where do I fall in that spectrum? Which ones have I uh, participated in in different points in my life? And have I shifted and and changed and also helping us recognize that it's okay to shift and change. And our reasons can be different because we are in fact growing and changing and evolving, you know, throughout the lifespan. That's exactly as it should be. So All right. I think it's a good time right now, if I may, let's go ahead and close this episode up. Those of you who have enjoyed this episode, don't uh, miss the next three that are forthcoming. If you are enjoying this uh, this platform, I have so many offerings for you. Please subscribe to this podcast. Also, if you're interested in any of my online groups or any of my online courses or some uh, consulting or some coaching with the people on my team, reach out to me at latterdaystruggles.com and we can get you set up with whatever it is that you need. And I thank you for being here and we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.